take a Bible this morning, find 1 John. We're going to press on in our study of 1 John this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 to 14 is the section or the passage that we're going to look at this morning. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. There's some notes in the bulletin. If you picked one of those up, you can follow along with some of the things that we're going to talk about. We'll start with an idea that I mentioned last week. We talked about terms of endearment. John regularly used terms of endearment like beloved. Last week we saw him use the term my little children. This week it's beloved. And you can see I gave you the references. He uses this term over and over and over again. My guess is it's a word you have not used over and over and over again over the last week. In fact, the last time you heard this term used outside of a scripture reading might have been at a wedding where the officiant got up at the beginning and called the whole thing to order and said something like, dearly beloved, we're gathered here today. And you hear those words and you sort of know where the guy's going. And you know, this is how we begin a wedding. John used these sorts of terms regularly. The word that he used here, beloved, is in Greek, agapitoi, and it just means dear friends. It's more than friends. It's more than, hey, y'all. It's more than, I'm writing to my buddies. There's a level of emotion and affection and concern that's wrapped up in this word. And it's just a little word. It's a Bible-sounding word, a church-sounding word, and we can read it and move on so easily. But don't miss the fact that John regularly uses these sorts of uh, terms of affection or terms of endearment to write to his readers. It's a reminder that while John says some hard things... He's not necessarily using a harsh tone. I tried to make this point last week, and it resulted in one of the great moments in my preaching career. I raised my voice, and I said, it's not like John is telling us, hey, you idiots, listen up. And one of the justice children at that moment was turned around backwards, and he heard me say that loudly, he, and he turned around and said, okay. So that was a great moment. I didn't understand what he said in the moment, so I tried to ignore it. Um, but it was good. I loved it. Last week, John 2, 1 to 6, we talked about the moral test, uh, the ethical test, the obedience test. The question is, if you want to have assurance of salvation, are you obeying God. That was the test that John set before us. The test this morning is the social test. And we're going to tease that out and explain what we mean by that. It's the social test. And I just want to acknowledge that these are not the only two tests that you and I have to take and pass if we want to have assurance of salvation. There's a number of tests in this book that John sets before us. There's a number of variations on these tests, especially this social test is going to come up over and over and over again, and John's going to look at it from different angles or different perspectives. But these are two tests that we've got to take, the moral test and the social test, if we want to have assurance or certainty about our salvation. It's not a coincidence that John has grouped these two tests together early in the book here. Essentially what John is doing is he's connecting the two great commandments to love God and to love others. And if your Bible's open, you might just look at the verses we looked at last week. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Whoever keeps his word 
in him truly the love of God is perfected. And I told you last week, John is not saying the more you keep God's word, the more he loves you. What he's saying is the more you keep God's word and obey his commandments, the more you find yourself loving God. Your love for God grows. Now if you jump ahead to our passage, 1 John 2.10, we read, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So we've got these two ideas, verse 5 and 10, loving God and loving others. That's essentially the combination Jesus came up with towards the end of his life when he's pressed about which commandment is the greatest. And Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And he says, here's the greatest, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God first and loving others. John is grouping those two ideas here early in this letter. Now, the big idea of our passage is really pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It's not necessarily easy to live out, as we're going to talk about this morning. But here it is. Our new life in Jesus empowers us to love one another. So whereas last week we're focusing on the love that we have for God that translates to keeping his commandments. This morning we're thinking primarily about the love that we have for each other on a horizontal level. This is one of the tests, the social test that John sets before us. So let's read the passage, and then we'll pray and ask God to bless the reading of his word. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That's the reading of God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a book like 1 John, and we thank you for the honesty of it. We thank you for the emotion behind the hard things that John has to say to us. And Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to examine our lives and our relationship with you in light of your word, in light of what you've revealed to us. Lord, make it plain and clear to our minds and to our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share a headline with you. This is from the New York Post, May 6, 2020. Faulty coronavirus kits suspected as goat and fruit test positive in Tanzania. Now, I know the way the Internet works. Um, 
people who run websites like to come up with article titles that get your attention and make you curious. I clicked on an article this morning as I was scrolling through social media, and I got to the article, and I thought, this isn't at all what I thought it was about. I'm not interested in this. They got me. That's what they try to do. I clicked on this one because I thought, I'm not so curious about the goat. I'm curious about the fruit. And I said, I got to know what's going on. So I clicked on the link, and here is the backstory. The president of Tanzania, I know I'll say his name incorrectly. Uh, the president of Tanzania is a, name, a man named John Magafuli. And Magafuli, President Magafuli, like all world leaders right now, he's trying to get testing supplies for his nation. So he's ordering kits and swabs and all the stuff that you need. And some of the people that he's ordering from, he says, I feel good about it. I feel confident. I trust the source. Others, he says, I'm not so sure that I'm actually getting a good test. And he's worried. If we start to administer these tests, we're going to have false positives. We're going to have inaccurate results. We're not going to know what's really going on. So as he gets these tests in, he pulls aside a group of his health officials that work for the government. And he says, look, we got these tests coming in. I want you to test people in the clinics. And then he said, I also want you to test sheep. And I want you to test goats. And then this is the one that got me interested. He said, I want you to test the pawpaw fruit. I've never had a pawpaw fruit. I'm going to be looking for it at Market Street. We like to go to the little part of Market Street where they have weird stuff back there. And sometimes we buy it and sometimes we say, oh, that's too weird for me. I'm not buying it. But maybe they'll have a pawpaw fruit back there. Hopefully it's been tested if it came from Tanzania. He says, we're going to test all these different people. The sheep are clear. So if you have a flock of sheep over in Tanzania, don't worry. The sheep are clear. There's no COVID. The goats tested positive. The goats had coronavirus. And the CDC says today they might change their mind tomorrow and then change it back the next day. But they say today animals can have coronavirus. They can't transmit it between animals and humans. That's their story today. The CDC does say fruit, which I assume would include the pawpaw fruit, cannot have coronavirus. Maybe on the outside surface, but not have it like you and I have it. Yet these tests, faulty tests, said that the the pawpaw fruit has coronavirus. Sometimes in life, the results you get from a test are skewed or inaccurate, not because of the subject that you're testing, but because of the test itself. Sometimes the test is the problem. One more example of this, our family was uh, putting a bow on the school year, and we were doing the last week of schoolwork, and uh, Amelia had an assignment. She had to get on Google Classroom, she had to click on this link and read this article, and she had to click on this link and answer the questions, and so she clicked on the link, she read the article, easy peasy, clicked on the link, answered the questions, got about halfway through the questions, and all of a sudden the questions about halfway through the Google form went from English to Spanish. And she said, Dad, I, I don't know. Her teacher speaks Spanish, and so I bet what happens is she sat down, she worked on the assignment, she's working at home, there's distractions. She got distracted. She came back to finish the questions and just picked up, and out came Spanish. And uh, the problem was not with the students. The problem was not, had you read the article? Did you understand the article? The problem was with the test itself. What I want you to understand is that what is true for coronavirus test and what is true in third-grade Google Classroom 
is also true when you are testing yourself, trying to see whether or not you have assurance of salvation, whether or not you are certain that you know Jesus. Sometimes we take the wrong test. We wrestle with our relationship with God. We wrestle with whether or not we know Jesus. And sometimes we take the test that sounds like this. Have you invited Jesus into your heart? Maybe that test leaves us questioning, and so we end up saying, did you mean it when you invited Jesus into your heart? Maybe that test leaves you wondering, and so you say, well, did you mean it the third, fourth, 20th, 50th time that you invited Jesus into your heart? Did you do it right? Did you get it right? Did you get baptized? Do you attend the right church? Do you feel a certain way? We take all these tests trying to find certainty, in our relationship with God, and sometimes we're taking the wrong test. John lays out in this book a number of tests if you want to have certainty about your relationship with Jesus. He says this in John, 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's not trying to convince you to believe in Jesus. He assumes you already believe in Jesus. This is not an evangelistic letter. It's a letter written that you might know that you have eternal life. He's not telling us in this book over and over and over again, here's what you do to have eternal life. Here's how you become a follower of Jesus. He's telling us over and over and over again, here's how you know. Here's how you can have certainty about your relationship with Jesus. And the test that he gives us in this section of verses, verse 7 to verse 14 is the social test. What does John say about the social test? Several things that are worth noting. Number one, we can have assurance of salvation when we love our brother. That's the test. You can have certainty about your relationship with Jesus when you love your brother. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. That word stumbling that John uses, it's a bit ambiguous as he writes it here, but other places in the New Testament, every time you find that same word, the biblical authors are talking about something that we do that might cause someone else to stumble or struggle in a spiritual sense. So probably what John is saying lines up with that, and he's saying, if you love your brother, you will not cause him or her to stumble. And he says, if you love your brother, that's just a biblical word for fellow believer, fellow Christian, the people you go to church with, the people in your Sunday school class, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. I think it's clear as John teases this out, you want to be in the light, you don't want to be in the darkness. To be in the light means you know Jesus, you have certainty about your relationship with Jesus. To be in the darkness means you have absolutely no certainty about your relationship with Jesus. Here's an explanation from a great Bible preacher, James Montgomery Boyce. He said, a Christian may know that he has been, he has truly been made alive by Christ when he finds himself beginning to love and actually loving those others for whom Christ died. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, when you love others, you get saved. He doesn't say, the way to go to heaven 
is by loving other people. He says the way that you can know that you have been made alive in Christ is when you find yourself loving others, loving others for whom Christ died, loving other Christians, other believers. Some of you hear that test. It's pretty simple. And immediately you feel deflated and defeated and discouraged. You're all smiling nicely, nodding along like you understand. But in your heart, what you're thinking is, Ugh, I know how I feel about some of the people in my church family. You're saying, I sit on this side of the room because those people are sitting on that side of the room. And it's just not that I think they have coronavirus germs. I don't want to sit by them. Some of you say, well, I can kind of see people on the other side of the room, so I actually sit close to those people so I don't have to look at them and think about them. Like there's a feeling you might have about certain people in your church family, in your Sunday school class where you say, oh, those people, they grate on me. They get on my nerves. I don't like how they do this. I don't like how they do that. And you know, and you're already feeling uneasy with this test because you know how you feel about other people in your church family, about brothers and sisters in Christ. And you say, well, I guess I fail the test. Sermon's over. I get an F. Let's go home. If that's how you feel, I want you to understand, to a degree, that's okay. Here's why it's okay. I like the explanation from Karen Jobes and her commentary on 1 John. She says, love is not an emotion, as John's talking about it here. It's not an emotion. It's not a sentimental abstraction. It's not like when you see those people walk into your Sunday school class, you ought to immediately get the warm fuzzies and the butterflies and, and nervous and have the, the excited anticipation of, oh, I've missed you so much. If that's not there, it's okay. It's because love isn't any of those things. Love is living with others as God intended us to. That's the point of God putting us together in a church. We're not together in a church because we come from the same places. We like the same things. We have the same hobbies. We're interested in the same sports teams or activities. We're all in the same socioeconomic group. It's easy to be kind and loving towards those people. It doesn't require anything of you. It's actually those people that you feel not butterflies, but maybe a pit in your stomach that you're called to love. This is the test. Not do you feel a certain way about those people, but are you willing to commit to living alongside those people the way God intends you to live with them? Here's a few more things John says about this test. He acknowledges that the command is both old and new. Old and new. Look what he says in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you, listen to this, no new commandment, but an old commandment. This is not new, it's old. Now look what he says in verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. John kind of sounds like some of you are going to sound in about 40 minutes. You're going to walk out of this room, it's going to be close to lunchtime, and someone in your group is going to say, okay, where do you want to go for lunch, or where do you want to pick up lunch? And some of you are going to say, I don't care. 
And then the other person who brought it up in the first place is going to say, well, how about, and they're going to say a place. And you're going to go, no. They're going to say, oh, I, thought, I thought you didn't care. Well, I don't care. Just, just not there. And so they're going to say, okay, well, how about this place? And you're going to go, eh, yeah, I guess, eh, maybe not. And that person's going to look at you and say, either you don't care or you do care. Like, pick one. You can't be both. And John is kind of playing both sides here. He just says, look, what I'm saying to you is not new. <clears throat> what I'm saying to you is new. He's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. He's actually just talking like Jesus. Jesus said this in John 13, 34 to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And at that moment, all the disciples would have said, whoa, whoa, whoa time out, time out. That's not new. That's in Leviticus 19.18. There's nothing new about that. Jesus says, hold on. I know it's old. Here's how it's new. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This idea of loving others is not new. The newness is the example that Jesus sets for us. Jesus is saying, look, not only am I asking you to love those close to you and those like you, I'm ask, actually asking you to love those who annoy you. I'm asking you to love your enemies. I'm not just asking you to love others when it's easy or convenient for you or it fits in your schedule. I'm asking you to love others in a sacrificial way when it's costly to you. I'm not just asking you to love the people that when you see them, you're just so excited to be with them. I'm asking you to love the people that when you see them, you feel a pit in your stomach and you just want to groan. Jesus is saying, I'm not asking you to love people just when it makes you look good for doing it. I'm asking you to love others humbly like a servant. John 13, maybe washing their feet doing the one thing that no one else wants to do. That's the newness of what he's calling us to. And John acknowledges, yes, this is an old commandment. There is also a sense in which it's new. Last, John describes loving our brother as walking in the light and hating our brother as walking in the darkness. That's verse 8, 9, 10, 11. These contrasts are intended to help us understand the contrast between light and in darkness, the contrast between love and hate. And the way John draws the lines, he's just very black and white in the book. He just says, look, there's really only two possibilities here. Either you love your brother or you hate him. And most of us say, well, is it really that simple? Well, in matters of discipleship, it usually is that simple. That's the way Jesus talked in Luke chapter 14, his friends and his family were coming to see him. His friends were all around him. And his family was wanting to come in. And he talked about who was his disciple. And then at one point, Jesus actually said, Look, if you're going to follow me, you've got to hate your family. Your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. And everyone was just shocked and offended. Jesus isn't calling you to go slap your family members. He's not calling you to, to, to use foul language when you speak to them or talk about them. What he's saying is there's a, a contrast, and it's really either one or the other. 
Jesus is saying in Luke 14, either I'm first or I'm last. Either you love me more than them or you don't. And he uses this language to sort of grab us by the spiritual shirt collars and wake us up. John's doing the same thing here. We'd like to just sort of live in the fuzzy gray and, you know, not go all the way towards loving our brother, but also we're not going to be mean and cruel. And John just cuts it right down the middle and he says, look, either you love him or you hate him. One or the other. If you love him, you're in the light. You're going to have certainty and assurance about your salvation. If you hate your brother, if you hate the people in your church family, if you don't love others for whom Christ died, you're in the darkness. You fail the test. You're in the darkness. You don't know where you're going. You're just stumbling around, bumping into everything. The darkness has blinded you. And John just divides it like that. Light and dark, love and hate. And when you read the test and you understand it, I think it's worth just being honest. It's honest for us to just stop and say, that's a hard test. That's difficult. It's challenging. I mean, I can think about some people in my life that it is very easy to show love towards. And I can find or I can think about some people in my life that is very difficult to show love towards. Some people who really just chat me off most of the time. Some people that you see them coming and you don't feel those warm fuzzies. You just sort of want to turn your head and walk the other way. John says, you love them or you hate them. And I'm not saying do you feel a certain way. You're never going to feel like you love all of the people in your church family. I don't care how big your church is or how small your church is. I don't care how similar everyone in your church is to each other or your class or how different they are and disparate they are. You're not ever going to feel that. The question is, do you love with action your brother? Are you living with your church family, the people that God has put into your life, are you living with them the way God intends for you to live? That's hard. It's not easy. It's not an easy test. I just sort of don't understand the person that could look at this test and say, check, move on, let's go to the next one. Got it. I think the way John's talking about it forces us to slow down and say, wow, what a calling. Am I up for it? The challenge presented here makes me think of Nehemiah. We won't turn to Nehemiah. It's a book in the Old Testament We won't talk much about him. I'll just remind you. Nehemiah uh, lived in the Old Covenant, Old Testament. He lived when God's people had been taken into exile and they were just starting to come back to the promised land. Jerusalem was a mess. They had rebuilt the temple, but it didn't look that great. It was kind of junky. The walls of the city were still in ruins. And Nehemiah came back and his mission in life at that moment was, I'm coming back to rebuild the walls of this city. That was not an easy task. The whole city had just been demolished. I mean, it had been flattened. It had been burned. It was ruined. It was not an easy job to rebuild the walls of this city. And on top of the difficulty wrapped up in the task itself, he faced opposition. He faced people who opposed him every step of the way, some of them threatening him, some of them essentially saying to him, if you put one more brick on that wall, we're going to come after you. We're going to come after your family. 
Others weren't so direct, but they worked behind the scenes to trick him and trap him and put him in a compromising situation. And at one point in Nehemiah 6, some people came to Nehemiah and they said, Nehemiah, you got to stop. You got to stop. These people are not playing. The stakes are too high, it's too dangerous. You need to stop and you need to go to the temple and hide out. You will be safe in the temple. Stop building the wall and take care of yourself. This is what Nehemiah said when they told him to stop. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. What I'm doing is too important to quit. He didn't have any illusion that it was easy or safe. But he absolutely refused to quit, to stop, to give up on the task that God had given him. A few verses later, he said, should such a man as I run away? Is that the kind of person that I want to be when it gets difficult, I just quit? Is that who God has called me to be as a leader amongst his people? I can't quit this task. It's too important. I cannot come down from this ladder, not for one second. And I will not be the kind of person who runs away from this challenge. That's the mindset you and I have to have when it comes to loving the brothers, loving your church family. It's not easy. And you will face opposition. It will be challenging. And you can quit, and you can run away, and you can be the kind of person who just gives up when it's not easy, or you can essentially say what Nehemiah said and say, look, this is important. God thinks it's important. It's what he's called me to do, so I'm not going to stop. And I'm not going to be the kind of person that just runs off into the darkness because it's easier to be in the darkness than in the light. Look, John 2, 7 to 11, John is telling us this task is important. Here's why the task matters. You can't quit. You've got to keep doing this. In verse 12, 13, and 14, he shifts and he starts to tell us, Don't forget who you are. Don't forget what kind of people you are. It would be unbecoming of you to give up on this task. He tells us who we are in this poem. He knew it was hard to love others, so he reminds his readers who they are in Christ. Verse 12, 13, and 14 is that reminder, and it's poetry. You'll notice on the page of your Bible, the font or the format, rather, is probably different, and that's the Bible translators telling you this is a piece of poetry. These verses go together, 12, 13, and 14. He's reminding us who we are, and here's what he tells us. Number one, believers are family. Family. He's been using the term brother, love your brother. That's family language. Here in this passage, 12, 13, 14, he talks about little children, young men, and fathers. Bible scholars argue about this. They say he's talking to three different groups, three different age groups, the young pups, the middle-aged, and the old dogs. He's talking to the age groups. Other people look at it and they say he's not talking to age groups. He's talking to mature believers, kind of in the middle believers, and then brand new believers. It's, it's not an age thing. It's a spiritual maturity thing. You can take either side you want on that. I don't care either way. Maybe it's both. John does a lot of that in his writing. Don't miss the fact that he's using family language. Love your brothers. He could have just said love your fellow church members. He says love your brothers. 
He writes to the fathers and to the children using family language. Listen, when God saves a sinner, he adopts that wicked sinner into his family. He makes them his child. And when you look around this room or you look around your Sunday school room and you see a mixture of people, some of whom you really enjoy being around, some of whom make you want to groan, you just need to be mindful of the fact that they have been adopted into the same family you've been adopted into. Your family. Not like, yeah, I mean, I got my real family over here and then I got my church, air quotes, family. Like it's less real than my biological parents. That's not how the Bible talks. The Bible says you're in a family together. Brothers, sisters, children, parents, fathers. It's family language. Family may not change the way you feel about everyone, but it certainly ought to change the way you act towards others. John says, don't forget that you're family. You are family. That's why around this place, we try to talk about the Emmanuel Church family. Church family. We're not a social club. We don't hang out here together on Sunday mornings because we have a whole lot of stuff in common. We're family. We're sinful people who have been adopted into God's family, and that makes us family. Secondly, believers are family. Believers are also forgiven. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. If you like to make notes in your Bible, you could circle forgiven in verse 12, chapter 2. You could draw a line to verse 9, chapter 1. We talked about this verse a few weeks ago. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's the idea that your debt has been canceled. Not just like it's been written off and we pretend it never happened. It's been canceled because someone paid it. It's the blood of Jesus that pays your sin debt with God. When you confess your sin, you agree with your sin, agree with God about your sin, your debt is canceled. It's counted as paid. So we're family, we're forgiven. If God has forgiven us as family members, certainly we should be forgiving with each other. Forgiven people are forgiving people. Thirdly, believers know God. This might be the most remarkable idea in the whole passage, maybe in the whole book, and it's so easy to read over because John writes so clearly and so simply He says in verse 13, you know him who is from the beginning. You know him. The end of verse 13, he says, you know the Father. Then again in verse 14, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. If you follow social media trends, you know that every couple of months there's a question that might pop up as a trending question. And the question goes something like, who is the most famous person you've ever talked to in real life? You can click on that question when it shows up and people will say, you know, I was at this concert and I got to go backstage and I got to have a conversation with the the lead guitarist of this band. Or somebody will say, oh, no, I went to a a football game, uh, Texas Stadium, Cowboys Stadium, and after the game I got to talk with so-and-so. Or, hey, I, I was at this political event and I met the 
the, this politician, the governor, the president, and people talk about the most famous person they've ever talked to or had a conversation with. And John jumps into that human interest question with the ultimate Jesus juke, Bible juke, God juke, and he says, wait a minute, forget the politicians and the athletes and the musicians and the movie stars and the celebrities. You know God. You know the Father. Get this. You know the one who was from the beginning. You know him. You talk to him. For all the things that divide us, for all the reasons it's hard to love each other in action, even when we don't feel it, this brings us together. We know the Father. We have that in common. Last thought, number four, believers overcome. They overcome. Verse 13, the young men have overcome the evil one. Verse 14, he says, young men, you're strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. If you keep reading in your Bible, just a few more pages to the right, you come to the book of Revelation. It's a book that John wrote, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He also wrote Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, over and over again, he talks about Christians as people who overcome. Those who overcome. All he means is, Christians are people who hang in there and endure all the way to the end. They don't quit. They don't give up. When it's hard, when it's challenging, when it's difficult, they don't stop. They keep going. That's certainly true of Christians or ought to be true of Christians when it comes to loving each other, that we're people who overcome. We're people who endure to the end. We don't stop when it gets difficult. We just press on and we keep doing it, not because we're so great, not because we're so powerful, not because we're so impressive, but because we know God. It's because he's forgiven our sins. He's canceled our sin debt. We want to be forgiving with others. It's because we're family. We're not just left to endure and make it to the end all by ourselves. God puts us in his family, in a church family, so that we have people that walk with us and make sure that we overcome. So that's what John says to us about the social test. I just want to end by praying uh, that God would make us the kind of people who pass this test. So let's pray.